The Red Agenda is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favourite online betting company. By downloading the Bet365 app, you can access both pre-match and in-play markets, along with instant match updates for all games. The Bet365 Bet Builder also allows you to make personalised bets via the app, so you can bet on multiple scenarios and create your own bet with unique odds right there in your own hands. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Hundreds of thousands hold their breath on Merseyside. It's Xabi Alonso for three. Three is saved. And Alonso follows it in. It's wonderful. It's marvellous. It's 3-3 in the European Cup final. This is the Red Agenda. I'm Steve Hothersall. As always, we have our dedicated uh, Liverpool writers for The Athletic, James Pearce and Simon Hughes. And we're going to take a slightly different tack on things today with the Red Agenda, obviously in light of what's happening around the world. So let's uh, talk with our boys. We're all in isolation in different studios. Uh, hello, James. You there? Morning, Steve. And we've got Simon as well. Everything all right, Simon? I'm very well, thanks, Steve, yes. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. Let's start the um, the show off by just explaining what we're going to do. We will always answer the questions that come in on the inbox by the end of the Red Agenda because there still are lots of them at a time where uh, nothing is happening in the world of football. But there's plenty that people want to know, so we'll address those at the end. But we're going to dedicate the show in future weeks, perhaps um, segments of each show, to different times in Liverpool's history, times that, that mattered. So we thought it'd be quite appropriate to start on the, the 90s. And we say appropriate because Simon Hughes uh, has written a brilliant book, Men in White Suits, Liverpool Players in the 90s, the players' stories themselves. And there's some fascinating characters that really draw you into this conversation. When you think of the 90s in Liverpool, Simon, what, what immediately strings to mind for you? Um, thanks for the plug, by the way, that's great. It's, it's hopefully going to shift a few more books over the next few weeks. Um, mixed emotions, really. On a personal level, I, w- I would say frustration, because uh, it was sort of my entry point into supporting Liverpool. So I grew up sort of watching videos uh, provided to me by my dad of all of the great moments in the, in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And I was sort of getting old enough at this point to start going watching football. So... Uh, I think my first experience of going to Anfield was was under Graham Souness and Liverpool won narrowly against Coventry City, which ironically was a club that they, they sort of they struggled against in the nineties in many ways, sort of symptomatic of Liverpool's failures in, in that decade. So I, I was sort of brought up on this healthy diet of success, but going into that decade, it was sort of staggered into three periods. Really, there was obviously the the Kenny Dalglish left, uh, resigned unexpectedly. And then there was the Souness period, who was a character that I'd grown up on the legends of Souness. Like my dad loved Graham Souness even more than Kenny Dalglish. So when he got the got the job, I thought, oh, it's going to be great this, you know. And he obviously found it a lot harder than I think he anticipated. Um, and then after that, you've got the Roy Evans period, where Liverpool played some amazing football at times, had some fab- fabulous players, but uh, couldn't quite get over the line when it mattered. And then there's the start of the Julio period. Uh, from 98 onwards. So it was a time of great change, really, when when you look back at it. Unprecedented change, I'd say. Uh, probably more change than in any decade in Liverpool's uh, modern history. But, I mean, I think there's a temptation to sort of look down a little bit on the decade. But, but you know, the, as I said, there were some amazing games. Some of the football Liverpool plays in that decade were incredible. You know, and some of the, some of the nights in Anfield against Newcastle United twice, obviously, some great victories... So, yeah, I think it sort of explains modern Liverpool as well. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating decade, which, you know, hadn't been written about too much uh, in, in, in depth terms. And then that's why I decided to write the book, because I thought, you know, it was a, it was a part of Liverpool's history which hadn't been covered too much. I mean, Simon's almost referred there to four different Liverpools, James, within the space of 10 years, because if you, you look at those different managers, the styles and what it represented, all very different. Kenny at the end of, of you know a very attractive period of football and their reign. Obviously, Graham Souness, where he changed things too quickly. Uh, Roy Evans, very lovable, but obviously fell into that that marriage in terms of the joint managerial role with Gerard Houllier, and things went wrong. And then Gerard Houllier. So you've got you've got ten years with four very distinct 
different individuals. But what part of the 90s do you do you immediately get drawn to? Because if we say the 80s, we've probably all got a year or a couple of games we focus on. Where, where in the 90s, James, do you go straight away? For me, it probably is that, that Evans team that I think of. And, and almost a sense of kind of disappointment that of what a tale of what might have been, really. Because as Simon touched upon there, I, I think that Roy Evans team of kind of 96, you know, probably 97, 98, is very underrated. I think there's, there's kind of a rush. There is a rush, as Simon said, to kind of dismiss the 90s as just a decade that everyone would want to forget, Liverpool-wise, after the dominance that had, that had, that had come previously. But I, I actually, 96 was the first season I had the privilege of watching Liverpool week in, week out. Like That was the year I came to Liverpool as a student. And um, I absolutely loved those years. I mean, that that, that team was was something else. Yeah, of course, it wasn't it wasn't the complete package. And you know, Manchester United uh, came out on top in 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 those duels over the course of the of the full season. But I, I think of I think of Fowler. I think of Redknapp. I think of McManaman. You know, McManaman, one of my favourite ever players to pull on the Liverpool shirt. I think he's one of those that. Is, again, is I think underappreciated when when the conversation centres around the greatest ones who have, have pulled on a Liverpool shirt. And he, and Liverpool were absolutely sensational to watch in that period. Yet yeah, they, they probably were a bit too open, too expansive at times. But yeah, do you know what? That's that's what I think of it. And just that that sense of what might have been in terms of they they didn't win the silverware that that team really should have mm. done. How did? Graham Souness perhaps upset the juggernaut. There, there was a man who'd been at the heart of what everything was all about in the, the 80s, Simon. And, you know, even now, perhaps if you're going to name the top five Liverpool players, many would have him in their top five, maybe even top three. He's he's that good. But yeah, perhaps he, he didn't understand how you took the reins or, or how you dealt with a, a, a club like Liverpool straight away. So how did he get it, perhaps? I don't want to say so wrong, but clearly he took things in a, a different direction than others might have done. Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, I, I remember vividly uh, the, the night um, Kenny Dalglish, or I should say the, the, the last game Dalglish took charge of Liverpool because a friend of mine, I was in primary school at the time, and a friend of mine was the mascot when Liverpool drew four all at Everton. At Goodison Park, and I remember him coming into school the next day, and everybody wanted to know what has happened. And I remember the following day, obviously, it was announced that Dalglish was going, and so everybody was like, "What have you done?" You know, like sorts of things to the lads. And um, when when Sunes came in as his replacement, obviously he had a, there was there was a couple of months when Ronnie Moran was in charge, and results were a bit uh, up and down in that period. And Liverpool had to work hard to get Graham Sunes away from Glasgow Rangers, a club that he'd. He transformed um, over a five-year period. You know, Rangers were really struggling when he went in, and uh, with with the support of the Murray family, who put a lot of money into Rangers off the back of the Heysel ban as well. He was able to sign, I guess, reverse centuries of, oh sorry, a century of tradition where Scottish players came to England. Suddenly, England English players were going to play in Scotland. Um, you know, he, he achieved some some great things with Rangers and. And, and put them on the path to to winning league after league after league and, and, and wrestling the initiative away from Celtic. So he came to Liverpool with with enormous confidence. Um, you know, he's had sort of a de- more than a decade of unbroken success by the point he he uh, he arrived at Liverpool. Everything he, he sort of touched turned to gold. He, you know, obviously became the Liverpool captain, won the European Cup. He went to Italy. He was a success there. He went back to Rangers. He won everything there was to win there. So, you know, it just seemed like, you know, that culture of success at Liverpool would continue when he was there. But there was, there was, I think there was a lot going on behind the scenes at Liverpool in terms of things that needed to change that hadn't changed in terms of it was an aging team that he took over. The team wasn't quite as strong as um, maybe in years gone by. You know, there were a number of reasons for this. You know, I think obviously in the aftermath of the Hillsborough disaster, um, football didn't seem quite as important and, and I think Kenny Dalglish has, has gone on record saying he, he sort of found it hard to let go of some of the players um, after that, and it contributed towards the, you know getting rid of players who he'd who he shared the dressing room with. So there was that that was a bit of a problem because he wanted to also sort of change the 
the the dietary uh, method, uh, dietary habits of the players. Hmm. You know, let's not forget he'd changed. He, so he'd he'd been in the same dressing room as a lot of these players when he was known as a champagne Charlie and. Some of the players thought he was being hypocritical. You know, there was no need to change because Liverpool had done it a certain way for so long and they'd been so successful. But obviously he was right about all this, but the way he went about it, I think, wasn't so tactful and he had alienated himself quite quickly from senior players who he used to count as friends. At the same time, you know, his transfer record in terms of the players that he brought in was, was poor, if I'm being totally honest. Spent a lot of money on, on players like Julian Dix and Neil Ruddock, who in the long term for Liverpool, just weren't, in my view anyway, good enough for Liverpool. I think people agree with me on that. Well, that, li- that list's quite long, isn't it? I mean, you're Nigel Clough, you're Mark Wright. They're not, they're not bad players, but perhaps some of the players that they're trying to mingle in with are, were very different to them. So your Molbys, your Rushies, your Grobbelars, they're, they're not similar to those players that you're mentioning. Yeah, well, I remember Jan interviewing Jan a few few years ago and he was telling me he was he was aware that the players that were coming in just weren't quite up to standards. And he, he could tell that in the five-a-side games. You know, there was a lot of, like, sort of long passes being made in the five-a-side games when it used to be sort of short and sharp. And, um, like, Julian Dix was sort of one of those sorts of people. And, you know, Liverpool became a bigger, more physical team, if you like, sort of... I actually thought the players looked overweight, bizarrely, despite Tunis trying to manage the, the diet. Um, so the, the other big problem that he had, he, he sort of took on the responsibility of... Um, of negotiating player contracts at that time when Peter Robinson had, had done that traditionally for, for many years. And this led to a lot of problems because players who were getting old were wanting new contracts off the back of the sky money that was coming into the game. And Sunas wasn't willing to give them, you know, sorts of those longer contracts, which he was right about. But, you know, sort of he was unable to get rid of some players who who sort of um who, who wanted to go and some players that he didn't want to go did have to go. So he's trying to balance the books at the same time. So, yeah, I mean, I think there was a lot of things that he got wrong in terms of, I think his idea was right but in a lot of instances, but the way he went about trying to achieve that sort of um, alienated a lot of people, a lot of players. Um, you know, he probably, you know, it was, it was, it was remarkable that he lasted as long as he did in the end because Liverpool won the, the FA Cup in a season where... Um, you know, Liverpool performed poorly in the league. I mean, I haven't even spoken about his, his interview with mm. the Sun, um, which was obviously, he, he totally, I'm using this word a lot, alienated, but he obviously a lot of support that he had off the back of the Sun interview um, led to people sort of switching off from him because, you know, because of the timing of that. Although, you know, I've interviewed Graham and he, he sort of puts up quite a convincing and forceful argument about what he got wrong and why he got, got that wrong at that time. You know, he was also a man, he also has health problems as well. So there's so many things you could talk about Graeme Sunes. There's there's a show in itself, I think, just about I guess comparing Graeme Sunes the 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 uh, the player and Sunes the manager. It's interesting when you think about the cup finals of of the nineties and what perhaps they meant to Liverpool fans. So for myself and I went to you know the eighty seven cup final, the League Cup final. 88, of course. Um, but then you get to 92, and it's almost a cup final, James, that that doesn't really hold massive memories for Liverpool fans at large. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it was probably something to do with who who Liverpool actually had to beat to, to win that trophy. Because I, I think I'm right in saying they didn't actually play a, a first division club all the way. I think I think Sunderland were... Obviously, it's before before the Premier League era. They were they were kind of bottom half of the of the second division when they were beaten two nil in that final. So you're right. It wasn't it wasn't one that that massively lives in the in the memory. I think I think the only thing you'd say, to, you know, not that I would defend Sunis really, because I think he made I think a lot of a lot of his problems were of his own, own doing. I think you know I remember doing a piece with Ian Rush years back when he he talked about. You know how he, he even you know he because he was this big strict disciplinarian, he he really put them through it pre-season wise, which you know it's okay, fine, but there's a way of doing those things. And he said you know the, the outcome was we had a ridiculous number of injuries before before they'd even kicked off the season. You know, and that that's just not clever management. And he, and also he, he did inherit. You know, there were there were there were changes that needed to be made there, but you know, clearly I think he's held his hands up since and said he he. he he made too many changes too soon, and as Simon said, the recruitment just just wasn't good enough. And you know, and, and then the support for him kind of uh, ebbed away. I suppose the only the only other positive was that you know, he he did 
some young players did come through during during the back end of his of his mm. era, you know, with, with the likes of Redknapp and McManaman and, and Fowler. Um but yeah, just not a not a happy period. And I think it's no great surprise that, you know, after Sunus, after this big strict disciplinarian, you know, this this one who would be all over players, you know, always in their face and all the rest of it, suddenly, you know, you, you Liverpool go down a completely different route with Roy Evans, who, you know, personality-wise could hardly be any more contrasting to Sooners. Well, let's move to Roy. Definitely one of the boys. You'd probably put him in maybe the Harry Redknapp category, would you, Simon, in terms of one of those who was just around the players all the time um, and thought he would get the best out of them by giving them that extra bit of licence to be themselves? Yeah, I think at the time, the, the club decided that you know we needed to sort of just get back to some traditional Liverpool values and it was a you know history will treat it that decision may be you know quite poorly really because I think what happens soon after is obviously that the, the I guess the, the game the football Premier League is changing dramatically and the money coming into the game there's a lot more foreign players coming into the game you know, the game is going in the direction of what Graeme Souness wanted, but the club decided, well, let's just go back and, and, and try and recreate what was there before through Roy, who was, who'd obviously been at the club for, um, for for decades. You know, I think he first signed for Liverpool in the 1960s and has played uh, a couple of, you know, a few games for the first team. But, you know, the, the, the staff at Liverpool, the legendary boot room staff had identified him as being... Um, you know, a good reader of the game and somebody who who would work well on the coaching staff. And he, I think he was only was he twenty seven when he, he he became the reserve team manager um, at the start of the seventies. So he knew how to work with young players. And obviously, Liverpool, as James said, Liverpool had uh, Robbie Fowler, Steve McManaman, Dominic Matteo. Um, you know, Steve, Steve Harkness as well was was sort of he'd been signed from Carlisle United. Um, in years gone by, would have been described, I guess, as like sort of a classic Liverpool lower league signing. All these players, they, they thought that Roy had worked with before and and, and could mould. Um, so you could understand the logic in many ways, but I think that when you look back at it now, you know, maybe uh, had they had somebody put in, in Graeme Souness's measures, only not Graeme Souness, <laughs> um, you know, they, they could have saved themselves a lot of time because they only ended up doing what Souness wanted under Gerard Houllier several years later. So, you know, that was the way football was going. The, the, the Liverpool could have almost been ahead of the curve a little bit because clearly Souness had seen uh, how the game was changing in Italy um, with, you know, the game's being revolutionised by by science, I guess, you know, with, with AC Milan and Milanello and he'd seen all that and, and that's what he wanted to do at Liverpool. But, as I said, went about it the wrong way, which meant that Liverpool sort of lost a few years, really, in terms of development. But let's not forget, you know, under Roy Evans, Liverpool were, were pretty close. I mean, it wasn't like they were finishing, you know, lots and lots of points behind Man United. It, it was close enough. Um, and I know there's the arguments about, um, you know, he, he didn't finish outside the top four, um, which, which he never did with Liverpool. So Liverpool, as I said, played some amazing football under Roy. But I just sort of feel like, you know, that the club... Had they been paying attention to what how the world was changing, then maybe, you know, that period of time could have been viewed a bit differently. I've got to say, I just remember watching a, a free flowing football team. Steve McManaman was was mesmerising, wasn't he? Everyone knew he was going to be this this mega star. And if if that Liverpool team hadn't been about James at the same time as this young Manchester United team was coming through, perhaps they are judged against Fergie's boys at the time and this incredible crop that he had going. Yeah, 100%. And it's so, so much of it comes down to perception, doesn't it? And, and a bit of fortune as well. They had the misfortune of, of competing for honours with, with one of the truly great club teams under, under Ferguson. And, you, know, and you, you speak to players from that era, you know, people, people like Robbie Fowler and Jason McAteer, and, and, and they'll tell you they didn't, they didn't really lead their lives much differently to those Manchester United players. You know, they, they, it wasn't like Ferguson had, you know, uh, eleven or eighteen angels or whoever and never went out on on Saturday nights. It was just, do you know what? If you win trophies, then then nobody nobody cares really. It's when it's when you fall short that suddenly then people are looking for answers and and examining things in minute detail and and trying to work out 
why why that team weren't able to take that kind of that final step. Um, so I, I do I do feel that you know I think I think Roy Evans was let down at times by by the, by certain players. I think you know I, I think on the one hand there's this amazing kind of love for him and admiration that that helped bring out the best in players because they they admired him so greatly. But you know that there was always this argument that you know was he almost too nice because. Some were able to take advantage of that, and you know, I think the stories are pretty, pretty well known. From you know Neil Ruddock deciding it was appropriate to play past the pound coin along the back four during Premier League games, you know, the kind of thing that you know you you wouldn't even believe would go on during Sunday League football, and you know Collymore turning up for training late or or not even turning up at all, and you know getting the nickname. Fog in the tunnel from uh, from Ronnie Moran for the array of ridiculous excuses he came up with, and David James off doing modelling jobs. So you know there was, you know there there were things there that that shouldn't have happened that that did. But you're right to say that that has to be put in the context of the fact that they were beaten to a lot of those big prizes by a, by an outstanding Man United team. Roy Evans tells the story about how they went on some warm weather training and. Um, he was sat there by the pool and there was a, a bungee jump next to them. And the next thing he heard the announcer saying, and on the bungee jump next, Robbie Fowler. And Roy says he nearly, <laughs> nearly dropped his drink at that point. And then uh, Robbie did the bungee jump and then came to him afterwards. And Roy said, what on earth are you doing, Robbie? And Robbie said, well, I thought it'd be all right, boss. And, uh, and then Roy said, well, look, come on, let's, let's just have a drink and talk it through. And Robbie said, uh, I'll have a scotch, please, boss. <laughs> Maybe that story in itself tells you something about, you know, some of the characters involved around Liverpool at the time. Shevchenko scored the winner two years ago. He's up against Duday. Will he hand Liverpool the European Cup? Yes! Yes! European champions! Jersey Dudek with a penalty save. It's the Red Agenda and we're talking with uh, Simon Hughes and James Pierce. As always, I'm Steve Hothersall. And in Simon's uh, book, Men in White Suits, which looks at how Liverpool adapted changed uh, during the 90s, he's spoken to various individuals like Jamie Redknapp and Patrick Berger. Two very handsome chaps, as he quite eloquently describes in the book itself. Um, perhaps people think of the 90s and the Spice Boys and, and conjure up that image. I mean, obviously the suits at the FA Cup final didn't help, but some of them were a handsome bunch as well. Their, their image is probably one of the first things that you remember when you think about Liverpool in the 90s and that Spice Boys tag, Simon. Yeah, well, I've been writing about it this week for a piece that will go up in the next sort of 48 hours on The Athletic and it's i guess it's sort of going through that period and trying to trying to figure out really uh the reality from the myth in some ways because i think a lot of it was around perception uh, you know that the problems that the team faced i mean the the reality is it, a, a few players have said that you know we just weren't good enough defensively um you know like that the, the there wasn't i remember jason McAtee telling me that there wasn't somebody at the back who could just say you know, put the brakes on for 10 minutes because they, they were instinctively gung-ho Liverpool and maybe that should have come from the manager. Maybe the manager got the right signings in that who could have, you know, just just done that, played that role. Even like the sort of the most experienced players that Liverpool had left in the team at that time. John Barnes and Ian Rush, they were attacking players and John Barnes had been converted from, you know, a winger come forward to a holding midfield player, which... He's a bit crazy when you think about it. Um, but he, obviously, he, he plays a role in that team and, and, and for, for a couple of seasons, you know, did really well in that position. But Liverpool just didn't have that, that for, for a couple of seasons, that sort of tough tackling midfielder. Because I remember everybody saying, Liverpool needs a, a tough tackling midfielder like Paul Ince. And he went and signed Paul Ince, but I don't think anybody really meant Paul Ince in some ways. But um, so, yeah, I mean... I, if, if you if you look at that time again, I mean, I think that football and the way football coverage was was changing dramatically, you know, at a quicker rate than anybody really appreciated. So the winners would always be fine. You know, anything that the winners did would always be fine because they won. It wouldn't matter. You know, as James mentioned, you know, that Manchester United players were out in the same sort of venues as Liverpool players doing what footballers have always done. But the difference was there was more more scope on the players and, and, a, and a bigger media presence. You know, Sky mm. 
I'd, I'd put the, the faces of all the players into the TV sets of, of the whole nation and people wanted to know what footballers were doing. So footballers became more front-page news than they were before. So a Liverpool player, you know, jumping off a bungee jump, you know, would would sort of, it, you know, sort of generate some 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 conversation in a way that it just wouldn't <laughs> yeah. have done de- de- decades before. So, you know, I don't know whether the, the club was a, was was aware of that change as, as much as they could have been at times. You know, the, the perception, as you say, sort of they had a lot of players who were sort of nice players, very confident players, players who could play football, who looked good in the. You know, but this led to the perception that they weren't serious enough about winning titles. I mean, I think, think there's, a, there's an element of that which is true, but I just think fundamentally, you know, if, if the defensive signings would have been better, mm. there's every chance, as we've seen with Jurgen Klopp under Virgil van Dijk, if you get a defender and a goalkeeper, who, a goalkeeper who makes saves and a defender who can organise the defence, then it makes a massive difference. I mean, that, that, that team going forward... I would say was 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 even more exciting than the, the Jurgen Klopp team. You know that the the players at Liverpool had Stan Collymore was an incredible footballer. I thought, but maybe lacked that that discipline. Uh, the one thing the one thing that I will say is, I remember a lot of players said that you know there's a perception that Roy was too nice, and they uh, it was a common belief that they they sort of thought that he would you know deal out tellings off in front of you know and humiliate players at times, but he always did it with a smile on his face. <laughs> you know, because he, which 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 sort of created this perception that he was a nice guy, but I'm sure he was a nice guy. Rory Evans is a lovely fella, uh, but I don't think he would be scared of 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 conf- you know confrontation. It's quite clear a lot of players had confrontation with him if you read their autobiographies. Um, so yeah, there's a bit of that where which is reality and myth as well. I mean, Liverpool did try to make big statements at times in the 90s. And one of those was the, the signing of Stan Collymore, James. And you think of, what, £8.5 million. Well, back in the mid-90s, that was a lot of money. And if you actually, if you talk to Robbie Fowler now, Robbie will say that the, is the best strike partnership he's ever had is with Stan Collymore. Yeah, and he, he, was, he was absolutely sensational. I mean, in fact, I was... I had, um, I think it was Premier League years on TV the other the other night, and they had his 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 debut goal against um, Sheffield Wednesday. And you, you you know there aren't there aren't too many too many better better goals scored by players opening their account for Liverpool. When you when you look at that, the you know twisting and turning his way past two or three players, and then whipping it into the the far corner from from distance. And it, yeah, that you know Collymore and Fowler, that that was that that was up there with. With, you know, at one point with any any partnership we'd we'd seen in terms of an, an attacking double act, you know, it was, you know, and it, and it also it kind of shows that, you know, the, the the fact that Liverpool didn't get back to the summit of English football in the nineties, you know, wasn't wasn't for the want of trying in terms of, you know, that was a big statement of intent, a British record transfer fee, you know, hard to believe now, but yeah, eight and a half million pound was was a was a fortune to to pay Nottingham Forest to secure his services and. Um, yeah, I mean Fowler, sorry, Collymore even kind of fits into that category, doesn't he? About what might have been because you know he, he got off to that start. I think he got what, 19, 20 goals in his his first season, and, and and you think you know this this guy could really fire Liverpool back to where they're desperately trying to get to, but then you know it um, it, it fizzled out, and you know he he ended up being quite a, a divisive character rather than the you know the inspirational. New, new arrival that was going to propel Liverpool to new heights. What he was was the headline writer for one of the games of the Premier League eras as well, though, which of course was the first four-three. I mean, if you think of the nineties, that that has got to be the game, hasn't it? it? Still stands out as one of the, the all-time fixtures, just because of the nature of what happened. Kevin Keegan's response afterwards as well. Simon, for you, is is that the game that represents the nineties for you? I think, I think it does for me. Yeah. Um... You know, when you think about sort of all the money that was pouring into the game at that period, um, you know, as I said, football was was changing dramatically and it was becoming more of an entertainment. Um, and obviously that game was the, one of the first games, I guess, uh, in the Sky era, which, which you know, whether you're a Liverpool fan or a Newcastle fan or a fan rivals of either of those clubs, everybody remembers sort of where they were when that game was on. And um, it was just an unbelievable game of football. Obviously, Liverpool were, were, weren't quite at it in terms of the title. They, they were third in the league at the time, and Newcastle was second, having 
surrendered, you know, a healthy, healthy lead, which Man United were able to to um, pin back. And Newcastle really needed to win that game. And there's sort of that, that period of time where almost it sums up Liverpool, sums up the 90s, sums up Newcastle as well because of the, the sequence of the goals, you know, Liverpool mm. leading, Newcastle pegging them back and so forth. And if you look at the Liverpool fixtures around that period, um, I'm just looking at them now, you know, Liverpool has gone into that that, that run of, uh, that, that, sorry, that, that game, which I think was, was on a Tuesday or Wednesday night, I can't, can't quite remember, but uh, Liverpool had two weeks prior lost to Nottingham Forest at the city grounds, which had sort of dampened the possibilities of them winning the league that year. But then gone and absolutely destroyed Aston Villa uh, at Old Trafford in the FA Cup semi-final the weekend before. So it was like this lurching of, 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 of emotion from disappointments of, of not doing it to the, to the, you know, the realisation that they're in the final to then go and beat Newcastle and then pull themselves back into the title race. You know, and then they, they play Coventry the weekend after, as I said earlier on the podcast, the team that Liverpool, I think, in my research, I think they played 12 times between 1992 and 98, and had lost six of those games against Coventry City, who were always struggling against relegation. And Liverpool beat Newcastle 4-3. You know, great performance. You know, last-minute winner. Your strikers scoring the goals. The winner in front of the cop. And then they go to Coventry three days later and lose 1-0. You know, that sums up Liverpool in the 90s, that, that period of time in many ways. I mean, you know, some of the, some of the players. I mean, Newcastle, let's not forget, played an amazing part in that game. David Ginola and Fasino Esprilia scoring the goals. And then looking like Liverpool are going to lose, but then pull it back to, to 3-3. And then Stan Collymore... You know, great great performance by him that night. It was it was probably one of his best in a Liverpool shirt. Um, no, I get I get goosebumps still thinking mm. about that game, even though it, deep down I sort of knew Liverpool probably weren't going to win the the league. Um, you know, it sort of gave them that little glimmer of hope that they might just they might just sneak back in, but losing to Coventry the following weekend just absolutely killed them. Well, there are defining games where you do remember where you were, and that's one for me as well, absolutely. You know, just a, just a key moment. Another key moment, I think, in Liverpool's timeline is this idea of a, a joint managerial setup, James. And, I, you know, I, I seem to remember thinking when Gerard Houllier was appointed alongside Roy Evans, is this the future of football? Is this, is this what we're heading for now? <laughs> yeah, I mean... To be honest, it was a. I remember thinking at the time, how how is this possibly going to work? Because it was it was it was so new, wasn't it? And the, the idea of, well, you know, how, how you know, in in a way, you were thinking as as a Liverpool fan and someone who really admired Roy Evans. I thought, well, do you know what? You know, if if this if this is what's needed to to help the club just take that next step, then then so be it. But I think you know, even even looking on from the outside, you could see very quickly. Um, that following season, that this it just it just wasn't you know it just it, it just wasn't feasible over over a period of time, was it? And obviously now looking back, it's almost I almost find it even surreal that that, that Liverpool even went down that route. And I know from from doing a Q and A night with Roy Evans only about six or seven weeks ago now that you know it, it's something that he regrets in terms of he feels like he probably should have been stronger uh, and probably should have just said to the board at the time that, you know, you know, if you want to bring someone else in, then you know, maybe, maybe it is time for me to step away or certainly, you know, bring, bring in Julier as a director of football, you know, but with, with a head coach operating below him. But yeah, the joint managers thing was just, you know, an absolute nonsense, to be perfectly honest. I mean, Roy, Roy tells stories about how, you know, the, even the most stupid little things where, you know, Roy Evans would tell tell them in a team meeting, right, you know, 9am on the bus, and then Houllier would just undermine him by saying, you know, 9.15's fine, and just, you know, re- really stupid little things, and, you know, and it, it, it also there was a sense of Houllier would, would would almost leave, so it would say to Roy Evans, right, well, you can go and speak to him and explain why he's not playing, and it was, it, but the players didn't know where to turn, that was the thing, and, and um, you know, not surprisingly, um, things quickly unravelled. I remember, I remember going to the, the games, in, you know, week in, week out that season. And I think I'm pretty sure it's probably the only time in all my years watching Liverpool I saw them lose three times at Anfield in the space of a week. Um, and, and that ultimately was, um, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back, and, and Roy Evans walked away. Simon, should the, how should the 90s be viewed now? 
Should, should they be valued as a learning curve? Should they be admired in some respects and almost um, be used as a, a lesson on how not to do things in other cases? Well, uh, I think it, it's difficult because I think, you know, the 90s, given that period of time in football and in society, I don't think you're ever going to get that again. You know, like in terms of the amount of investment that was coming into football, you know, which... Let's not, that had a real big effect on sort of the decisions that Liverpool made and the perceptions that people had of Liverpool and the players. So I think it's quite a unique... I just think it's like a snapshot in time, really, where, you know, it was a very unique period, you know, that the, the country was coming out of um, a lot of, obviously, change uh, after so many years of Conservative rule going into new Labour at the time. And... People were feeling differently about football. People were feeling differently about players and their role in society. So I'm a bit reluctant to sort of say, well, that's that's not how to run a football club. I mean, it's probably not how you run a football club when there's immense change going on in society, you know, flip-flopping between ideas um, and, and obviously, you know, Liverpool sort of being caught in a bit of a time warp in many ways. But, you know, I, I sort of look back on it almost with sort of a bit of fondness in many ways, because as I said, there there were lots of games where Liverpool, you know, played some amazing football, you know, Liverpool had some amazing individuals in the team. I just get a bit frustrated that, like, sort of that almost became the periods where people fell in love with individual players rather than the team itself, if if you like, because there was a lot to love about the players, but not a lot of love about the team at times. Um, as James says, I mean, Gerard Hulley came in, fa- fascinating fella who had very different ideas from Roy Evans, and that was never, ever going to work uh, over a long period of time. It was sort of a bit of a fudge, really, sort of Liverpool, probably in the best interests of Roy, trying to trying to make it work, but very quickly, I remember speaking to Rick Paddy, and he was, him and Peter Robinson was, was identified very quickly that it wasn't working, and you know, they, they, they tried to... It's, it's quite remarkable, the things that you forget. You know, Hulley was on the verge of... Uh, he, was, he was in discussions with Sheffield Wednesday. Celtic wanted him at the time. And, you know, after the 1998 World Cup, Liverpool thought, right, you know, we've got to get the French manager in, you know, after Arsene Wenger's done so well. Um, and, you know, I think it's, a, it's maybe for another podcast, but uh, Gerard Hulley did, did, did revolutionise Liverpool and heave it into... the the 21st century in many ways. And despite the, the start that he had and, 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 you know, there was a fair amount of bitterness between, I don't want to say maybe not bitterness, but, but it's quite clear when you speak to Roy that, that, that he was he was left upset by the way it ended. But to be fair to Julio, you know, he did very well to get Liverpool going again, quick, you know, relatively quickly because within 18 months, you know, Liverpool were, were a, a serious football club and a serious football team again. Uh, some fascinating individual stories brought to life in uh, Simon's excellent book, Men in White Suits, uh, Liverpool FC in the 1990s. And as he puts, uh, Mavericks, playboys, goal scorers, luckless defenders. That's probably a good summary of it all, but an excellent book. Lisa puts it back into the box. Header on goal. Oh, he's got it. And the captain has delivered a blow to AC Milan. They may be three goals down, Liverpool, but Steven Gerrard has urged the thousands of Reds fans inside here to get to their feet. A headed goal from the captain. This is the Red Agenda on The Athletic. And uh, thanks to our good pals at Beer52.com, you got the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash agenda and pay the postage of £4.95. If that wasn't enough, as a Red Agenda listener, you get two extra free beers, so ten free beers. That can't be bad at this moment in time. Beer 52, beer pioneers. They travel the world uh, to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They're now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver uh, a case which has got a different theme. Might be Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand. 
Ireland. As an independent UK company, Beer 52, also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. And the beauty of them is you can leave at any time. The power's in your own hands. Your case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine, Ferment, and a beery snack is thrown in too as well. Uh, go to www.beer52.com forward slash agenda to get your case free. And don't forget, uh, you can get it right now. The Red Agenda listeners get two extra free beers. Now, this is the Red Agenda on The Athletic with uh, James Pearce, Simon Hughes and myself, Steve Hothersall. Now, lots of questions still coming into the uh, Red Agenda inbox because uh, people in isolation having lots to think about. So let's try and plough through some of them. Um, and we'll start with this one. My neighbour, Quarantino. I don't know where he's based, but he says, given how poor Liverpool have historically been after breaks... How much do you think this gap in football will affect performance levels? He's obviously been thinking an awful lot here. Will he be balanced by other teams also losing match sharpness? Well, presumably across the board, James, this will be the problem for all teams, won't it? Yeah, it will. And I think the, the interesting thing will be that when when the green light does finally come for for football to resume, how long they then decide... To, to give the teams and the players and the managers to actually get them get their players in a in a position to to actually play competitive football again because it's not it's certainly not a case of okay right fine you know you can uh, report back to Melwood on uh, on Monday and we'll the Premier League starts again Saturday so um so no I think I mean it's 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 a break unlike any other isn't it I don't I know what I know what he's getting at in terms of there's been a few times where you know I think that was the time when Klopp took them away to to Dubai and and then Liverpool were were you know the performances were a bit flaky on their return and obviously after the winter break there was a wobble um, but yeah nothing quite like this I mean this you know, you'd, you'd almost liken it to you know the longest preseason they've ever had really by the time that they they come to to play again but no I wouldn't I wouldn't be too concerned about that especially because let's not forget Liverpool need six points mathematically over those nine games to to guarantee themselves the title so it's it, it's not as if they um you know there's, there's not huge pressure on them to massively hit the ground running when um whenever football does return my understanding of how they're keeping them in shape physically Simon and how they're monitoring this they've all, they've all got apps whether it be Liverpool men's or ladies teams they've got apps and the the team are obviously in the background in terms of uh, the scientific team, the team that monitor their progress. And they're still making sure that every day they're reaching their, their certain levels of training. They're still missing out on all being together and sort of collectively training together. But in terms of fitness, they can monitor just what levels they're reaching at the moment. Yeah, well, I, mean, I, I, I don't think it's like sort of this happened 30 years ago, players being in isolation and going home and eating burgers and, and you know, trashy food, I think. You know, players tend to take care of themselves anyway now. Um, I know there was a story this morning about Liverpool's... Um, one of the big things, obviously, that, that Jürgen Klopp is, like, sort of massive on is, is 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 sort of the mental capacity of the players and how he he sort of works with them and, and, and his... You know, this, this, this Liverpool team is his team, isn't it? So he's constantly, constantly, you know, on at the players and constantly on top of the players. Obviously, he's not able to do that in person now. So, you know, the, the, that's going to be something that's lost. So that he he's keeping contact with them on a daily basis. Um, and Liverpool are trying to make sure that the mental health of the players is, is, is right because, obviously, to go from a situation where you're spending a lot of time with teammates and training and you've got low, so much momentum uh, in the season and you're close to winning the league to go from that to then being alone you know for you know could be a long period of time it's going to take a lot out of the players so I know Liverpool are, are, are going to you know are trying to keep on top of that so it's not just about sort of keeping fit you know players a lot of the players have got gardens players have got pools where they can make sure that they keep in shape I think the bigger question is, is sort of you know like everybody else really you know sort of making sure that you know, the, the, the mentally that the right mm. and when they come back for football, that they're in, in, in the position to sort of take on, you know, take the, take the mantle back on and, and be ready. Um, so that, that I would suspect, you know, I think, I think the sort of the fitness sort of stuff takes care of itself. The bigger challenge really is making sure that the players 
I've got the heads right, I think, when when eventually uh, they do get back to, to Melbourne. Right, uh, John Prescott has um, sent us a message in. John, who says, if the league does restart in June, what will happen with players out of contract on the 1st of July? Can Bosman signings play for their new clubs from the 1st of July? What's, what's the situation? Liverpool are affected by this, James. Yeah, they are. I mean, not... Not massively, and not as much as some other clubs will be. But of course, you know Adam Lallana, as it stands, is only a Liverpool player to the end of June. Um, the same with Nathaniel Klein. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean that's that's one of the many many things that they're going to have to work through. Um, you know, what, whether whether they they sanction. You know, FIFA have spoken about the idea of of almost sanctioning kind of one or two month extensions to to contracts to, to tie players over who would have been involved to the end of this season, um, to the end of the season when it when it is finally kickstarted again. I mean the, the the other thing of course is as it stands at the moment, you know, the, the transfer window opens in June and you can officially register them on the first of July. Now I know I know the clubs at the moment are still clinging to the hope that they can complete this season by the end of June. But if it does fall over into July and, and August which is which is more than possible. Then, then of course, you know, what are they going to do about that? That's another thing to, another thing on the list of things to to address. You know, I I can't really see a situation where you you could register new players on July the first, and you know, for argument's sake, you know, Timo Werner or someone like that could potentially end up playing in 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 Liverpool's uh, final six, seven, eight, nine games of the season. I don't. I just don't really see how that's how that's possible. Surely the transfer window will only be able to properly open once this season is complete. But that's another thing that's going to going to need to be to be rejigged. But you know, at the moment, in, until we know when football does actually start again, it's um, it's all up in the air. Well, on Timo Werner, uh, another question in here. We get them every week, but we always throw them at Simon. He knows, seems to know what's going on. How far are we now in negotiation for this player? Um, deadlines obviously seem a little, little bit fluid at the moment. Yeah, well, I just think, you know, everything has is, is changed. I mean, at the end of February, I think people were expecting that, that Liverpool would ramp up their, their not, their, not just their interest, but their... They, they formalise their interests in Timo Werner around this time. Um, I've got to be honest, you know, a lot of people have sort of gone quiet on that. You know, I, I've been keeping on top of the story, but it just seems like everything that's happened has is, is, is sort of slowed things down. Because clearly, you know, Le- Leipzig um, are going to be wanting to find out what's happening with the Champions League. They're having a great season, could win the Bundesliga. You know, they're in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. Uh, I don't think anybody can afford to make any decisions until, you know, they they know when next season is going to start. So, um, so yeah, I think at this stage that the, the the from what I can tell that the the sort of the discussions are, remain at the informal stage. Right. So question mark next to that one is it a little bit of a, a random question? Maybe I'll throw this at you, James. It's about potential Liverpool signings. Highest profile player to almost sign for Liverpool that didn't make the news. I don't know whether Gareth, who sent that in, is just referring to in the last 20, 30 years. Um, I know you, you've written about this stuff before, haven't you? High-profile players that nearly came. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I did a did a big piece on The Athletic probably about a, a couple of months back now on, yeah, the transfers that, that kind of nearly, that nearly happened, uh, you know, and, and ones that Liverpool could have got. Um, you know, Gareth Bale, Cristiano Ronaldo, Sergio Aguero, um probably the amongst three of the the most high high profile ones and um yeah there's been there's been you know obviously many many over the years in terms of ones that ones that got away um but uh, yeah they there's that 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 probably be the uh I'd, I'd point him in the direction of that piece on the athletic for uh, i think there's probably about 15 or or 20 players mentioned in the in the premier league era of of, of ones that uh that, that, that could have ended up at Liverpool if things had worked out differently. Yeah, it is a really good article. Uh, let's finish with this. Uh, Paul says, I've been thinking long and hard about this, but is it finally time to come to terms with it? Is it OK to like Gary Neville now? I, I really like Gary Neville. Uh, Simon, what about you? <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. Um... <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. He's got a social yeah, conscious. He's given yeah. up his hotel, hasn't he, for NHS yeah, workers? Well, uh, yeah. Obviously, what he's done there is 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 incredible, really, to um, 
you know, he's obviously, he just has, you know, he clearly has some sort of social understanding of what's happening. Um, you know, and I, I sort of admire his drive, you know, and what he's done after football. There's great, I think, parallels between him and Jamie Carragher, you know, that clearly players who, legends of the clubs who, who don't just want to sit around and, and do nothing, I think. You know, Gary Neville and, and Jamie Carragher both want to sort of, you know, they realise that they've got a lot of life to live and aren't, don't just want to be remembered for the, uh, I guess, the, the 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 football careers. So, obviously, he's had a very very impressive sort of post football CV, Gary Neville, in terms of what he's achieved. Um, so I wasn't I wasn't that surprised to be honest, because he, he's got a good understanding of what's going on in Manchester and um, you know what 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 he's done there is really going to help uh, the Greater Manchester area. Um, but nevertheless, still in football terms, I think it's still healthy to have a bit of rivalry, isn't it? It's okay. Oh, yeah. It's okay bit to still think. I, I don't agree with everything that he says. <laughs> bit of both. On the on the uh, the social conscience front, and we'll finish with this, James. Brilliant that the uh, the Liverpool chief executive Peter Moore has organised for some of the Liverpool stewards to be involved in uh, making sure that that supermarkets are running correctly at this moment in time. It's something we'd have never thought would have had to happen, but um, the stewards have come forward and said we're more than happy to be involved in crowd control at a time where a lot of our supermarkets need that help. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I think that was... That was a, a really, really great gesture from from Peter Moore, and um, you know, it's. I think Liverpool are trying to do everything they can, aren't they, that, to to try and help. Um, you know, he Peter Moore himself has been very big in terms of the the community initiatives and that the, the LFC Foundation uh, do, and you know, of course, all of that work has has had to be kind of you know severely kind of reined in as, as a result of the outbreak, and you know, they're not able to to do what they do for thousands of. Of, of people in the community each week, but they're they're trying to think of other ways in which they can help. And I think you know the other thing probably worth a mention is that that commitment to ensure that all casual workers at Anfield on match days are going to get their money as if the games had gone ahead right up to the end of at the end of April, um, which you know going to cost Liverpool I think about a quarter of a million pounds for each of those games. But um, I know from from some of the feedback we've had already that you know that means a a huge amount to, to people who are, who are very worried during such a difficult time. Thank you, James and Simon, as always. And if you'd like uh, any of their fantastic stories that they've been looking into, please head to theathletic.com. Uh, go on the Liverpool section. It's just tons of stuff. You can, you could spend days immersed in all that. And, of course, all the other teams in the Premier League covered off um, as well. The Red Agenda will return next week at a similar sort of time. And if you'd like to get your questions in, always remember our inboxes always open we love your company thank you very much uh, for listening and if you'd like to catch up on any of the previous pods they're all listed there so maybe even download the athletic app and you can find all those previous podcasts we'll see you again next week 